Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. All right, Hosea chapter 4. Now, we did last week, we did chapters 1 through 3, and uh, basically 1 through 3 talked about unfaithful Israel as seen through God's eyes. Actually, all of Hosea is basically that. Uh, but the chapters 1 through 3 was compared to an unfaithful wife. And Hosea, the prophet, got a very literal understanding of God's heart as he views unfaithful Israel. And I'm talking about Israel. I'm talking about the northern ten tribes, the kingdom of Israel at this time. And so Hosea got an understanding of God's heart towards Israel through the marriage of his wife, Gomer, who was unfaithful to him. And, uh, and so, uh, it, you know, God used, that, God used Hosea's life to really just impact him so that he understood God's heart, and he had the same burden that God had for his people. It was a fa- fascinating study. If you didn't hear it, um, it's on the Internet. You can go to the either podcast or go to our website, and you can listen to it. But here we are now in chapter 4. And in chapters 4, basically through 6, chap- verse 3, because that's how far we're going to go today, God is presenting his case against Israel, and it's also a warning to Judah. The Judah would be the southern two tribes after they had split. So the first section here, verses 1 through 3, it's kind of, as you get into this chapter, it's kind of like a court of law. Um, God is going to lay out his case against Israel and then the evidence that supports his charges against Israel. And just like, you know, I don't know if you have, ever, have you ever been to a court or maybe you've watched, uh, you know, People's Court or whatever, Judge Judy or something. You know that in the beginning of every court, the bailiff or somebody, as the judge is walking in, announces, all rise. You, ever, you guys ever done? Yeah, okay. Um, I remember once I went to traffic court with one of my sons. It wasn't Luke. It was another one. And uh, he had a, a pretty big ticket, so we had to go to court for it. And I was chewing gum. And the lawyer said, if any of you got, or the judge, you know, he's like, if any of you guys got gum, I want you to spit it out right now. And I'm like, uh, I was like petrified. I'm like, I've never heard anybody say that in a court. And I'm like, you know, swallowed it. You know, I was like, <laughs> but you know, that's what happens in a court. The judge, you know, everyone, when, the, when, the, when they cry out, all rise, everybody stands up. You don't sit down. Everybody stands up uh, and everybody stops what they're doing and they listen to the words of the judge, whatever he says at that point. And, and it's, you know, they're to pay respect to the judge and they're to give full attention to the judge's words. Well, chapter four, like I mentioned, it's like a court case. It starts out kind of the very same way where Hosea cries out, hear the word of the Lord. And so it's to get our attention. It's to get us stopping what we're doing. Oh, God's speaking. We need to listen to what he's saying. And so that's how this opens. Verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you children of Israel. For the Lord brings a charge against the inhabitants of the land. There is no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. So that's the, that's the charges. There's no truth. There's no mercy. There's no knowledge of God in the land. Verse 2. By swearing and lying, killing and stealing, and committing adultery, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Therefore, the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away. With the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, even the fish of the sea will be taken away. So the charge against Israel in verse 1, there's no truth, 
There's no mercy and there's no knowledge of, the, of God in the land. Well, what's the evidence that backs up the charges? Well, that's in verse 2. What's the evidence? Well, the first charge, there's no truth. What's the evidence? He says it. The people are bearing false witness. They're swearing falsely. They're, they're swearing false witness or bearing false witness against their neighbor. They're lying to one another. So there's no truth in there. The next charge, there's no mercy What's the evidence? Well, there's an increase in violence and the people are killing one another and murdering one another. Nobody's being merciful to each other. They're, they're just, they're violent. They're just solving it by killing people. The next charge, there's no knowledge of God in the land. Now, uh, when, when we think of that knowledge of God in the land, you could probably say everybody here in the United States knows, you know, there's a knowledge, a general knowledge that there's a God. Well, some people don't believe that he exists, but generally speaking, there's a knowledge of God in the land. But that's not what this is talking about. It's not just an intellectual, yeah, I know God exists. What this is talking about is this is a conviction of the heart of God's uh, omnipresence. In other words, and if you don't know what that means, that means that God is all-present, everywhere, all the time. God's never away. God is never absent from what's going on in the affairs of mankind and in the affairs of you and I as well. And God's never unaware of what's happening. So there's no conviction, no knowledge that, hey, God is with us. God's here. Also, there's no conviction of God's omniscience. That's another fancy word, and it basically means that God is all-knowing. That there's nothing hidden from his scrutiny. Not, a, not our actions, our outward actions, not even our thoughts or the intentions of our hearts. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And so when we're talking about the knowledge of God, what we're talking about is that awareness that God is watching me. I have to answer to God. So that's what he's talking about. There's no knowledge of God in the land. And when there's no conviction of God's omniscience, when there's no conviction of God's omnipresence, well, private sins abound in the heart of man. And that's what he's talking about. Stealing, thefts, pilfering, burglaries, uh, cheating, adultery, lusts, secret affections that are not only physical, but maybe emotional. And not only those, but spiritual adulteries. In other words, professing to love Christ, in our case, but inwardly loving the world and the things of the world. Remember, Jesus said, don't love the world or the things of the world. What the Bible refers to when people have that hidden kind of, you know, intentions of the heart, it's called having a divided heart. Where you profess to love God in one sense, but in your heart there's a division there. There's there's these secret affections. And that's what is happening when there's no when you don't realize that God knows what I'm thinking. God knows my my the attitude and my thoughts and my heart. Then those sins abound in the heart of mankind. And notice in the verb tense in verse two, you know, because sometimes we go, well, oh man, I, I've lied, or, or 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 man, I you know, I've lusted, or or I've you know, I've been mean to somebody or whatever it is. But the verb tense in verse 2, notice they all end in ing, which means that they're continual, they're ongoing sins. It's called practicing sin. Verse 2 states, they break all restraint with bloodshed upon bloodshed. Uh, in other words, their wickedness was like kind of like a levy 
or a dam breaking where water's just gushing out and it's bloodshed upon bloodshed. In other words, there's a never-ending stream of wickedness. This is what God is saying is happening in the kingdom of Israel. Verse 3, Therefore the land will mourn, and everyone who dwells there will waste away with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Even the fish of the sea will be taken away. Now, referring to the land mourning, it could be referring to a drought uh, that God would inflict upon his people. And when I say that God would inflict upon his people, I don't believe it's that God is inflicting punishment upon his people. But what I think what is really happening is that it's the effects of sin, where it's not like God is punishing, but God's removing his hand of protection. And when God removes his hand of protection, well, that's when things happen. And that's when bad things happen. Um, and, and so the effects of sin, God's basically pulling back his hand of protection, and these things are happening. You know, I wonder with some of the things that are going on in our nation right now, uh, some things that, you know, seem really ominous. I, I wonder if, you know, it's, I don't think it's God's punishing us, but I think it's God just saying, okay, you're rejecting me, and so I'm going to pull my hand back. And you're going to bear the effects of the sinful choices that you as a nation are making. Could be. A drought uh, would not only affect um, agriculture, but if, as most of you know, you know, once, once uh, there's no water for, for crops, that means that there's not enough food to feed your livestock. Uh, so the livestock are affected, even the wild animals. I mean, everybody is basically foraging for food because there's a lack of it based on no rain. So that's what it could be referring to. It could also be referring to the effects brought out, uh, brought on by an invading army. You know, when an invading army comes in, they take whatever natural resources they want. They don't care. You know, my parents grew up in in uh, in the Netherlands uh, during World War II, and when when Holland became occupied by by the the Nazis. They, they pretty much raped and pillaged the land. I mean, they took whatever they wanted. Uh, uh, you know, they had, the, the people had food to eat until the Nazis came in, and then everybody's like scrambling for food because they're taking everything to feed their army. And it could be referring to that. And, of course, as the Assyrians would come in, you know, they're going to take up all the resources that were there. So now God char- God's charges are leveled against not only the people of Israel, but in verse 4, he starts talking about the priests of Israel. It says, verse 4, Now let no man contend or rebuke another, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priest before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. And it shall be like people, like priest. So I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. For they shall eat, but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry, but not increase. Because they have ceased obeying the Lord. So the charges against the priest. Verse 4, God's telling the people... Uh, not to try to rebuke one another for their sin. Why? Because everyone was guilty. There wasn't anyone who was innocent. They were all guilty. He says, for your people are like those who contend with the priest. See, what should have been happening in Israel 
is that those who were sinning, those who were going in, getting caught up in idolatry, they should have been rebuked by their fellow Hebrews who were not going into idolatry. Those who were, you know, following the Lord, they should have been rebuked by those. Uh, but those who sinned and failed to listen to the rebuke of their fellow Hebrews, according to the law, the next step would be to take them to a priest. And then the, the righteous priest who, you know, he's under God's authority, he's God's representative there amongst the people, then he would rebuke the person who wasn't listening to anybody else. And uh, basically that was, a, that was punishable by death if you didn't listen to the priest. To the, to the priest. But God is saying here, hey, you people, you don't even listen to the priest who's supposed to be representing God to the people. However, the priests themselves are just as bad as the people. It doesn't do any good. The priests are just, they're just as corrupt as everybody else. And not only are the priests bad, but the prophets of Israel were wicked also. In verse 5 it says, Therefore you shall stumble in the day. The prophet also shall stumble with you in the night, and I will destroy your mother. Now whose mother are they talking about? Well, first of all, the Assyrians would attack Israel in broad daylight. And they would continue their attack into the night. And their mother is probably referring to the nation of Israel's capital, the kingdom of Israel's capital, which was Samaria. So I think the mother is referring to uh, Samaria. Verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priests before me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children." This is really condemning on the priests there. They were no longer guiding and regulating the spiritual life of the people that God had appointed them to minister over. They themselves had rejected the knowledge of God. And because of that, they were no longer teaching the people about God or the fear of the Lord. And the people that they were supposed to be shepherding, you know, they were being destroyed by the negligence of God's priests. It's kind of going on in, this, in our society too. You know, there, there are pastors that are not teaching people to fear the Lord. And as a result of that, the people are languishing. The people are, the people are being destroyed for that lack of that knowledge, of the awareness of the fear of the Lord. I remember Jesus when he was, uh, you know, he was, uh, saw people coming to him. Remember he had compassion. The Bible says he had ca- compassion on those crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So this is really this is really damaging, or really uh, you know it's really uh, damning, if you will, on the priests themselves, because the priests had rejected God. God's going to reject them. Verse seven: The more they increased, the more they sinned against me. I will change their glory into shame. Now, some people teach that you know uh, God wants you to be wealthy. And uh, it's a sign of great faith and great godliness. And, you know, it's not that God doesn't bless us. And it's not that God doesn't want to prosper us. And, you know, God takes care of his children. He takes care of you and I. Uh, And it may include a blessing, a material blessing. Some of you, some of us at all, you know, you've been blessed materially, monetarily. You know, God's blessed you and stuff. But it's not always. However, Sodom and Gomorrah, or Sodom, I should say, the Bible in Ezekiel talks about their sin. And it says their sin was because they had too much abundance. And what happens when you have too much abundance, you know, you have so much that you don't have to work for anything, you get too much idleness. 
Verse, let me read to you, 16, Ezekiel 16, verse 49. It says, Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. You see, in some cases, increase can lead to forgetting God. I've seen it in my own life. When things are going well, God's blessing, you know, my prayer life is not as strong as when things are really a struggle. Then I'm on my knees praying, Lord, you know, and I'm always, oh, Lord. But when things, you know, it's, it's kind of the human heart. That's, you know, sometimes what happens. Uh, Proverbs 30, verse 8. I love this verse. It says, Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. If God's just meeting your needs, praise praise Him, right? Because He's blessing you. You know, sometimes increase can lead to forgetting the Lord. And that's exactly what happened here. That's what God is saying. The more that Israel increased the more they sinned against God. Verse 8, They eat up the sin of my people. They set their heart on their iniquity. You know, because God is omniscient, He's all-knowing, He knows the hearts of the priests. And He's looking at their hearts, and He goes, man, your hearts are intent on iniquity. You're, you're You're prone to it. You're driven to it. You're just intent on going that way. Verse 9, And it shall be like people, like priests, so I will punish them for their ways and reward them for their deeds. Both groups of people, priests and the, and the people that they were ministering to, they were going to be punished alike. There would be no distinction. Verse 10, For they shall eat but not have enough. They shall commit harlotry but not increase, because they have ceased obeying the Lord. That's, that's, that's the conviction. They've all ceased obeying the Lord. The fleeting pleasure of the sins that they pursue, basically God's saying, you know, you you think it's going to bring satisfaction, but instead it's going to leave you empty, it's going to leave you unsatisfied, and you're no longer going to be at peace. And you think about how many men or women who have fallen for the temptation to commit adultery. You know, the grass always looks greener in another pasture, but once they get there, they realize, man, this is emptiness. Uh, they've lost everything. You know, they've lost trust. They've lost respect. They've lost reputation. All because they thought, you know, they're pursuing that sin. And so God's saying, you're going to pursue those things, but it's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave you without peace. Uh, Verse 11, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. You know, I know as Christians... Sometimes you like to cling to that passage of Scripture where Paul talks about, you know, all things are lawful for me, but maybe not all things edify. And you, I have the liberty to, to drink alcohol. And, and certainly, I, I think biblically, there's not a thou shalt not. Um, but, you know, in Jeremiah 17, verse 9, it says that the heart is decept, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our hearts are already deceptive and they're wicked. And, and when, our, when we're sober, they are <laughs> wicked and they deceive us. How much more when our judgment is clouded by being intoxicated? How much more are we prone to being deceived by our hearts? You think of people that have that liquid courage. You know, we call it liquid courage. They go, they do the stupidest things because that judgment is, is gone. You know, so anyways, I'm done preaching there. <laughs> 
So he says, harlotry, wine, and new wine. And, yeah, harlotry, wine, and new wine enslave the heart. Verse 12, my people ask counsel from their wooden idols, and their staff informs them. Uh, for the spirit of harlotry has caused them to stray, and they have played the harlot against their God. When he's referring to staff, it's not like they have you know a bunch of people serving them ministry. <laughs> the staff is probably referring to something like a divining rod. And so they're seeking, they're, they're using divination, they're seeking idols to guide them rather than depending on the Lord for guidance. Verse 13, they offer sacrifices on mountaintops and burn incense on the hills under oaks, poplars, and terebinths because their shade is good. Therefore, your daughters commit harlotry and your brides commit adultery. I will not punish your daughters when they commit harlotry, nor your brides when they commit adultery, for the men themselves go apart with harlots and offer sacrifices with a ritual harlot. Therefore, people who do not understand will be trampled. Those high places and under the trees, it's probably referring to the worship of Ashtaroth and Baal. And those, the worship of these idols involved ritual prostitution. And in tree groves, uh, in forest areas, that's where these typically took place. And it says here that the daughters of the children, as well as the, uh, the daughters of the children of Israel, as well as the brides, their mothers in other words, they were all participating in this type of idol worship. And they were guilty of doing it, but look where God is laying the blame. Very interesting. It's at the feet of the husbands and the fathers. You see, the men of Israel who knew better, they were corrupted, and they were practicing these sins. And instead of being like the priests of their homes, they were just leaving their family to do whatever. They weren't, they weren't guiding they weren't teaching, and they weren't rebuking if necessary. And as a result, those who were unbridled, they'd be, they'd be trampled, basically, because of their lack of understanding, because those who were supposed to be guiding and leading them weren't doing their job. Verse 15, Though you, Israel, play the harlot, let not Judah offend. Do not come up to Gilgal, nor go up to Beth-Avon, nor swear an oath, saying, As the Lord lives. So now God is warning Judah, the southern nation of Judah, learn from Israel's sin. Don't follow their path to destruction. You know, God was always crying out to his people. You know, he was sending prophet after prophet after prophet. And here he's condemning uh, uh, Israel, but he's also warning Judah. Unfortunately, it wasn't learned by Judah because 100 years later, roughly, uh, after the Assyrian captivity of Israel, the Babylonian captivity of Judah occurred. Now, Gilgal is mentioned, and that's a place that's famous in the Bible. That was the city where all the men of, uh, of the children of Israel, when they were coming out of the wilderness and getting ready to go into Canaan, they were all under the leadership of Joshua circumcised, and it was signifying their covenant or their recommitment to God's covenant. Uh, but but by the time of this prophecy, and that was many, many years before, by the time of this prophecy, Gilgal had become a center for idol worship. At one point, they were really, they were renewing their covenant to the Lord. They were just cutting away everything of the flesh and they wanting to, to follow hard after the Lord. But they had drifted so far, now they were basically into idol worship. Verse 16, for Israel is a stubborn calf. Uh, is stubborn like a stubborn calf. Now the Lord will let them forage like an open, like a lamb in the open country. So 
when it talks about uh, Israel being stubborn, uh, some of your Bibles might say backslidden calf. It's basically a picture of one who pulls away and refuses to be brought under the yoke. Like this, this, this calf is just, it's almost like a donkey, you know. Um, verse 17, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. This is quite similar to what Paul instructed the church in Corinth uh, to do. Remember when there was that sinning brother? He refused to repent. And uh, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, he says, Deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, let them suffer the consequences of their rebellion. That's what God is saying here. Just let them suffer. Uh, you know, let, just let them alone. Let them alone. Let them bear the consequences of their sin. And it's not to punish them, not to wipe them out. It's, so, it's in hopes that they'll repent. In verse 18, it says, Their drink is rebellion. They commit harlotry continually. Her rulers dearly love dishonor. And so God was viewing Israel the way Hosea must have viewed Gomer when she went back into prostitution with no shame. Verse 19, The wind has wrapped her up in its wings, and they shall be ashamed because of their sacrifices. So like the winds, you know, they pick up the dried dead leaves and carries them off. What God is saying here, the northern kingdom that's going to get swept up and just carried off by the Assyrians. And not only is God presenting a case against the priests and the people of Israel and the prophets as well, but now we're going to move into chapter 5. And here in chapter 5, he's including the kings of Israel. So chapter 5, verse 1. says, Hear this, O priests. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment, because you have been a snare to Mizpah and a net spread on Tabor. Now, Mizpah means watchtower. And that was the place where Jacob and Laban, they made a covenant uh, not to harm one another. Remember when Jacob was leaving Laban? Laban came and chased him, and it was at Mizpah where they made this covenant. They said, I won't, I won't go to harm you, and you don't harm me, basically. Tabor means mound, and that's the place where God delivered Israel by one of the judges named Barak. Both of those places, Watchtower and Mound, they were elevated places. And uh, it's really interesting when you start reading about what does this all mean. Well, according to Nathan Barnes, is one of the commentaries, says there is an old Jewish tradition that liars in wait, not, not verbal liars, but people hiding basically, liars in wait, were set in these two places to intercept and to murder those Israelites who would go up to worship at Jerusalem. It's like a place where they get mugged, you know, and murdered basically. And uh, so verse 2 says, The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter, though I rebuke them all. So what this seems to be saying is that those kings who were supposed to, and the priests, of course, who were supposed to spiritually guard the people from sin and idolatry, instead, they were taking advantage of the people, and they were ruling them in a way for their own benefit. They themselves were entrapping people. So it's a condemnation on the kings. Verse 3, I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. Again, God knows what's going on. God is omniscient. He's, he knows those things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry. Israel is defiled. They do not direct their deeds toward turning to their God, for the spirit of harlotry is in their midst, and they do not know the Lord. 
He says here, I know Ephraim and Israel is not hidden from me. Again, God is omniscient. He's not only seeing their actions, but he knows what's going on in their hearts. He knows the intents of their hearts. And basically he's saying they're defiled and they're not making any effort to turn back to me. Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. Judah also stumbles with them. So in Israel's pride, you know, pride's a funny thing. Uh, You know, even when we're confronted with sin, sometimes we're so prideful we don't want to admit it. And this is the case with Israel. Their pride was refusing them to acknowledge their guilt. It was keeping them from acknowledging their guilt. And because of their pride, they kept stumbling on, going in the same direction. And God also sees the southern kingdom of Judah, and he warns that, you guys, you, you're heading in the same direction as Israel is. Verse 6, With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they shall not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. So they were seeking God, but not in repentance. They just wanted God to bless them as they continued on in their unrepentance. In, you know, with their lips, they're honoring God, but it was basically just lip service, and God knew their hearts. And God, who knows their hearts, declares their hearts are far from me, and as a result, they're not going to find me. Verse 7, For they have dealt treacherously with the Lord, that for they have uh, begotten pagan children. Now a new moon shall devour them in their heritage. Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke among the tribes of Israel, and I make known what is sure. Not only had uh, the northern kingdom of Israel adopted um, you know, the idolatry of the pagan nations around them, but they had also intermarried with the people with the pagan nations around them. And some of their offspring were the result of these intermarriages. And so this generation of of Israelites who had turned their backs on the Lord God, and they started intermarrying, because God had warned them, don't do that, but they had started doing that. And they got into idolatry, and they started getting married to these pagan wives. Even some of the kings were doing that. Um, They were raising children who were, you know, partially raised Hebrew, but also had this background, this pagan background. And so the kids were even less righteous or less you know, knowledgeable about God than their parents who had bore them. And so it's just, it's just going from bad to worse. So that's what that's what's the Lord's talking about. You know, I think about sometimes, you know, I, I think about uh, my parents you know, and and my parents were really. We, we had devotions every every day. We basically, you know, we at the dinner table. My dad would read the Bible. And we'd pray and stuff. And and then I, when I raised my kids, I wasn't as faithful as my dad was. I really wasn't. I I, I tried to do it, and we'd have you know bits where time you know time frames where I was really good at it and stuff. And then we'd kind of slip by the wayside. Things would happen. Get busy, you know. And, and so I wasn't as you know faithful to that as my dad was. I don't know about my kids. I don't know where they're at. Of course, you know, there's always a time when the Lord works with a new generation and there's a, there's a revival with a new generation. But think about your own children, you know. How you're seeking the Lord, you know, your kids may not be quite as on fire as you are. 
And so, you know, it's just, it's just things, if you're not seeking the Lord, don't think that your kids are going to be all of a sudden, they're going to be great and they're going to be seeking the Lord. Because if you're not seeking the Lord, chances are they're not going to either. That's, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Um, and I think that's what God is communicating to the priests here and the kings. It says, Now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. Basically what this is speaking about is the nearness and the suddenness of God's approaching judgment you know, by the hands of the, of the Assyrians. Because you think about it. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever watched a, a moon you know, rise or watched a sunrise or sunset or a moon setting, whatever. It's never standing still, is it? It's, you know, you can look at it in one moment, it's, it's moving. It's, it's never standing still. It's, it's on its way. Even when the moon or the sun disappears over the horizon, it's on its way around. It's, it's going to be back again. And uh, so basically, that change, it's, it's steady and it's swift. And so what God is saying is, hey, this destruction is sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's happening. And it's already beginning to happen. And before you realize, destruction is going to be here. That's why he says, Blow the ram's horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah, cry aloud at Beth-Avon. Look behind you, O Benjamin. In other words, sound the alarm. Uh, destruction is swiftly approaching. Don't blink because it's, it's going to be here before you know it. And, uh, you know, I think about in our t- day and age, how soon is the Lord returning for us? You know, I mean, I think it's, it's on its way. I mean, I, I believe God's word. And he said it's going to happen. It's going to happen. But uh, I think it's sooner than, than we might even think or anticipate. He says, Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. So as sure as the approaching new moon as sure will be the coming destruction. You know, God does not give empty threats. Sometimes as parents, you know, we tell our kids, you know, if you do this, I'm going to do that. And then they do it and we go, oh, no, if you do this, I'm really going to do that. <laughs> no, 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 really believe me, I'm going to do that. And we, we give these empty threats to our children. God doesn't give empty threats. God follows through. And so he's telling Israel, you know, hey, destruction is coming. You guys, you're refusing to repent. I know your heart's. And it's happening. And it's going to be here before you even realize it. Verse 10. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I will pour out my wrath on them like water. So what, what, you know, although Hosea here is primarily a prophet to the northern kingdom, um, God's also speaking through him to the southern kingdom of Israel. And like I said, for Israel, their time was up. God knew the condition of their hearts. They were beyond repentance. Now, I can't look at somebody and one of you and say, well, you're beyond repentance because I don't know your heart. But God knows your heart. God knows where a person is at. And for these people, the only thing left for them was judgment. But at this point, there's still hope for the southern tribe of Judah. And God's giving them a hundred years. Man, think how gracious God is and patient. God's giving them a hundred years the southern tribes of Judah, to learn from Israel, to repent, and to turn back. Some say, well, man, God was so severe with them. Yeah, but God gave them 100 years. Actually, God gave them a lot more than 100 years because for centuries before that, he had kept sending prophets to them. But God here is indicating in verse 10 that Judah is removing a landmark. What do you think that's referring to? Well, it's kind of like blurring the lines of definition at a border. You know, you have your neighbor's 
you know, you, you have this property line and, you, you know, your neighbor's on that side. And, you know, maybe you got a little post to mark off what your property is. And you just take that post and you kind of you move it a little bit. And all of a sudden that, that border is not quite as clear anymore. Um, I think Russia did that with Crimea or whatever. But anyways, you know, the, 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 the border lines are blurred. There's, there's less of a definition, less of a distinction. And what God is saying, the princes of Judah, they are losing their distinctiveness as God's heritage, as God's special people, as stewards of God's people. They're basically becoming indistinguishable from the pagans around them. Verse 11 Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment because he willingly walked by human precept. You know, I'm reading to you out of the New King James Version, but I think in this case, the King James is a little bit more helpful. Um, In the King James, it says, Ephraim willingly walked after the commandment. But wait a minute, if they walked according to the commandment, what was wrong with them? The, The commandment that they walked according to was the commandment that Jeroboam, that was why the Bible, I think the New King James translates it as a human precept, because what happened was Jeroboam gave a commandment to the people, but it was a a human commandment. Um, After erecting the two golden calves, one in Dan and one in Bethel, he said to the people of, of Israel, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought you out of the land of Egypt. And from that point, Jeroboam, he ordained a feast for the children of Israel. So he basically gave this commandment. Hey, don't go down to Jerusalem anymore. Here's your gods. Worship them here. That was a human precept. That was a human commandment. Basically, you don't need to follow God's commandment to the letter. You can stay where you are, and you can worship God a lot more in a less rigid way, a lot easier. And the people of Israel, uh, they're indicted because their command, quote, command, it appealed to their flesh. Hey, I don't have to go all the way down to Jerusalem. I don't have to go down and bring my unblemished lamb with me or whatever my turtle does or whatever to offer to the Lord. I can just go here to this calf and I can worship the way I want to worship. It's easy and it requires no sacrifice on my part. Verse 12. Therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth and to the house of Judah like rottenness. When Ephraim saw his wickedness and Judah saw his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to King Jerob. Yet he cannot uh, cure you nor heal you of your of your uh, wound. As King Jerob, there's not a literal King Jerob. This is the only place that it appears in the Bible. And King Jerob, it refers to or it means a contender or an avenger. And the Bible uh, commentators basically believe that it's a symbolic name referring to the king of Assyria. It's just like calling him president or whatever like that. Um, and so God's wounding Israel, and later he's wounding, going to wound Judah in judgment for their sin. And rather than turning to the Lord, both of the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, they turned to earthly kings, and in this case the king of Assyria, to protect them from invasions which God had ordained. So in the days of King Ahaz, he was a king of Judah, Syria and Israel, the nation of Israel, they conspired together to come against Judah. And King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria to help him. And instead of helping him, the Bible says the king of Assyria distressed Ahaz and brought him low. How did he do that? Well, Ahaz 
thought, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appeal to this guy. So he took out of his own treasuries, he took a bunch of his own money and gold and treasures and jewels and stuff. But he also took out of the house of the Lord and he sent it to the king of Assyria to try to buy his favor, to win his favor. And of course, the king of Assyria, they, hey, man, all right, I'll take the stuff. He took the gold, he took the, he took the, the treasures and everything, but he refused to help Judah. So Judah, the king of Assyria brought him low. And in the days of King Menahem of Israel, uh, Menahem tried to do the same thing. He tried to buy protection from Paul, king of Assyria. And it didn't buy him anything at all. And later on, as soon as his reign ended, it wasn't too long after that the Assyrians invaded Israel and took them captive. Captive. So they were trying to go to human, you know, trying to get help from human sources and basically, they were coming against God because God says, I'm sending them to destroy you. And they're trying to thwart God's uh, discipline, God's will. Uh, but it backfired on both of them. Verse 14, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Then they will seek my face. In their reflection, they will earnestly seek me. You know, God so often speaks to each one of us, as the Bible says, in a still, small voice. And uh, He wants you and I to be sensitive to hear His voice speaking to us quietly gently guiding us and leading us. But if you and I, if we refuse to listen to that still small voice, then God has no other option but to start roaring like a lion. And the nation of Israel, they had reached that point where God was roaring like a lion. Now chapter 5, man, it ends pretty dismally, doesn't it? I mean, if we ended up here, I hope you have a happy Palm Sunday and God bless you. That would be kind of, kind of bummer. But you know, that's the consequence of unrepentant sin. In a person's life, I, I was coming across. I was just doing a little background stuff, and I came across this quote from a guy by the name of Kyle M. Yates, and I just, it just, it, it just really sunk in with me. But it says here, he writes, "What does sin do?" And he only says, "It saps the vital juices, physical, mental, and spiritual, until a mere shell is left. The radiance, the winsomeness, and the attractiveness are gone. Decay is gradual." imperceptible, fatal. It works secretly, silently, stealthily to bring to ruin, to separate from God, to leave ugly scars, to contaminate, to degrade, to destroy. It brings to poverty, drabness, futility, frustration, and death. It robs the individual of the power to make moral and spiritual distinctions. It cuts the optic nerve of the soul. It hurts the only, uh, the holy heart of God, the supreme lover. Spiritual adultery stabs at the heart of the Lord, and that's what unrepentant sin is. It just, it just, it just brings you low. It, it just, it destroys people, and it breaks God's heart. And God's heart, man, it's broken for His unfaithful people. And Hosea, you know, being that prophet, he understood God's heart as he's writing these words, as he's speaking these words, because he was dealing with the same thing with Gomer, his unfaithful wife. And at this point, you know, Israel, they've gone so far from the Lord, he had to do something to bring them to the point of repentance. And so he says, I'm, I'm going I'm like, to be like a lion to you. I'm going to tear you apart. But 
we'll finish. We're going to jump into chapter 6, just a couple verses here, because I don't want to end it right there. Because he says, I'm going to do these things to you till you repent, till you come back to me. Verse 6, or chapter 6, verse 1, excuse me. Come and let us return to the Lord, for he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. God wants to heal the nation of Israel. But before that can happen, you know, just like a surgeon wants to heal a disease or, you know, you've got some kind of infliction or maybe you've got cancer, to heal you, the surgeon has to really hurt you. I mean, he's going to do violence to your body. He's going to cut your body open. It's going, to, it's going to be painful. But he needs to tear out that cancer or whatever it is that he's doing and then to remove it. And then he's got to bind you up and it's to heal you. And God is telling the children of Israel, hey, I have to tear you apart. I have to cut into you. It's going to hurt what I'm going to do to you. But I have to do it in order to heal you. But what a great comfort and a promise here. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up. That sounds kind of familiar to me with the Easter coming, right? It seems to be alluding to that beautiful prophecy, you know, the, the alluding to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. You read that right there in the Old Testament. But guess what? I think it could also refer to something else, which is interesting to me. You know, the Jews, you know, all the Israelites, Judah and Israel, for the last 2,000 years, They've been dispersed until just, you know, this recently they've been brought back into the land. But for 2,000 years, they basically were disappeared from, from, from uh, a national, you know, the national life for them. They were dead, basically. Um, and so it's interesting. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.8, With the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So, you know, we look at it, Israel's been dead, so to speak, the nation of Israel for 2,000 years. Well, God says, no, it's only been two days. They've been, they've been dead as a nation for two days. So for two days, they've been stricken. But after two days, or in other words, after 2,000 years, on that third day, or the start of the next 1,000 years, Israel's going to be revived and raised up. And I think this could very well be a prophecy of the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. You know, it, it's, it was partially fulfilled now with the birth of the nation of Israel. They've been brought back into the land. But it won't be fully fulfilled until Israel recognizes Jesus as their Messiah in that glorious reign of the Messiah for a thousand years. So it could be referring to that. He says, Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain uh, to the earth. So the problem with the nation of Israel was there was a lack of the knowledge of the Lord and uh, an understanding that God, that all their ways were laid open before him and they were being destroyed because of that lack of knowledge. And so Hosea here is urging them to pursue the Lord. And Jeremiah, you know, he was the prophet to Judah, and he basically said the same thing because that's the heart of the Lord to those who turn away from him. I come back, pursue me. Jeremiah twenty nine thirteen says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I've driven you, says the Lord, and I will bring you to the place from which I caused you to be carried away captive. Now, the land of Israel has two rain seasons. The former rain, who's referring to here, it happens in around the October time frame, and that's when the seeds are sown in Israel. And then the latter rain uh, happens around the March-April time frame, and it's just before the harvest. And uh, so God is saying here, if you pursue me with all your heart, I'm going to let myself be found by you, because Hebrews 11.6 says he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And he's basically telling him, hey, as I once blessed you in the former times, I'm going to bless you again in the latter times. And again, I think that's seeming to point to the blessings that, uh, you know, that are going to be poured out on the, on the nation of Israel during the millennial period. But I also think it's God's promise to you and I. You remember how, you know, you, when you first started out following the Lord, remember Israel there at... Uh, at uh, uh, Gilgal rededicated themselves to the Lord. They were renewing their covenant to the Lord, man. They were just, they were God's chosen people. They were going into the land of promise and, and they were just all excited about following the Lord. But through time, and God was blessing them. God was just pouring out his blessings on them as a nation. But through time, they started drifting away from the Lord. And, those, and God started removing his hand of blessing and they were not being blessed because God can't bless sin. And and so over time, the things just de- degraded and degraded and degraded. But God says, hey, if you come back to me, if you repent and return back to me, man, just you remember those blessings, the early rains? Man, I'm going to bless you again with, a, with the latter rains. And, and it's just a comfort to you and I and a promise to you and I. You know, maybe you're in a place in your life where you feel like, you know, things have just really dried up between you and the Lord. And you don't feel like, oops, you don't feel like he's blessing you and everything. But you know what? Repent and turn back to the Lord. Pursue Him with all your heart. And again, He knows your heart and your mind. Stop that there. I keep hearing this thing moving around. Um, he knows your heart. And He promises to bless you again because God's faithful. So, why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word this morning. Lord, we thank You for that reminder, Lord, that, uh, Father, that... You're everywhere. Lord, we can't go anywhere without your, you being there with us. Lord, you see, not only do you see everything, our actions, Lord, but you know our hearts. And Father, I just thank you for that reminder. Lord, I pray that we are just, uh, just uh, have that realization of the knowledge, the awareness of you, Lord, that has just uh, been built up in us this morning, Lord, that we might recognize that, and that, Lord, that that fear of the Lord would keep us from sinning against you, keep us from drifting from you. And, Lord, if we have already drifted, Lord, I pray that, Lord, this morning, that your Spirit is just encouraging us, Lord, to come back to you, to seek you, Lord, to to repent of those things and just to, to pursue you with all our hearts. Father, I know in our culture, Lord, it's so... It's so hard, and our flesh uh, just compounds the fact that, Lord, it's so easy to have a divided heart in this generation and in this life. Lord, I pray for each one of us, Lord, that, Lord, that we would renew ourselves, our commitment to you, and that, Lord, we would be singly focused on you, pursuing you, 
in our lives. And so we just thank you for that reminder this morning. I pray your blessings upon your people, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.